Hi, this is Brandon, and welcome to the Crucible of Thought podcast. I'm here to share things that interest me and things that I think the Lord has brought to my attention. Today's episode is titled, Let's Not Take Brandon to Church. This episode is a bit longer than my other recent podcasts, and I'm addressing something that deeply bothers me, and I think it needs to be addressed with some force and specificity. So let's dig in, buckle your seatbelts, and hang on for the ride. First, I'd like to set the stage. I grew up deeply conservative and deeply evangelical Christian. I spent countless hours listening to Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and Fox News, poking fun at the Washington Post and MSNBC and CNN, and attending political rallies for right-wing candidates and evangelical causes. I grew up on a religious diet of patriarchal, Calvinist, pre-tribulation, rapture theology. I say all that to set this context. I have a very deep, a very carefully developed, and a very internalized understanding of that thought process, or that framework of understanding. One might say that I'm intersectionally a white, conservative, evangelical Christian, and I'll wait while you wrap your head around the ridiculity of that claim for a minute if you understand intersectionality in the context of anti-discrimination. At any rate, lately I've been very ashamed of how my people are behaving, and I've been increasingly uncomfortable with a wide array of behaviors that previously I would have cheered. And from my perspective, the Let's Go Brandon battle cry represents a pinnacle of wrongness I've never seen before. What's the problem? Well, if by some unfortunate chance you haven't encountered that phrase before, I'm sorry to intrude on your sheltered world, but you really need to know about it. I'm not going to explain it here. A quick Google search will tell you everything you need to know. I'm not going to delve deeply into how Christians are supposed to relate to their leaders, other than to say this. I don't think we Christians are given any option other than to pray for those in authority over us. Paul in 1 Timothy 2, 1-2 was speaking to his fellow Roman-oppressed, cultural minority Jews, after all, and surely he expected his readers to understand that when he said, supplications, prayers, interceptions, and the giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, he obviously meant, even when they wrong you. Unfortunately, I can understand how hard it is to willingly pray for someone who feels like a traitor to the faith or someone who violates our entire sense of the right way to govern a nation. I'm not expecting others to feel affection towards flawed or even outright despotic leaders, but how we feel can't affect how we obey. I won't even delve deeply into the issue of swearing or cursing. To me, that's somewhat irrelevant to this discussion. I personally think the Bible's pretty clear on the topic of how we should speak, but I'm also pretty sure that no one's going to hell because of using a few choice four-letter words. But for the most part, such choices only really affect a few people at a time, in private conversations or even on social media pages. I do, however, want to address the phenomenon of this chant appearing in churches, and in the speech, and on the social media feeds, and memes, and clothing of believers. Let's be clear. Everybody, and I truly mean everybody, understands exactly what Let's Go Brandon really means. F. Joe Biden. At the very worst, sodomize him. Sexually violate him. 
At the very least, disrespect him in the most vile way verbally possible. That not that long ago would have led instantly to a fistfight in a bar for such blatant to the face spoken assault. There's just no getting around the meaning. But far more than that phrase, I think the importance lies in what its usage represents. I want to talk about the militarization of the church for a minute. For about 50 years, the evangelical church in America has employed increasingly militaristic language to describe the Christian experience. In the book Jesus and John Wayne, author Kristen Cobes Dumez carefully traces the recent history of the church as it struggled with maintaining its cultural relevance through world wars, the Cold War, and most recently the struggle to define American culture in an increasingly unchurched society. Her conclusion is that many of the heroes of the American church culture, from Billy Graham to James Dobson to Ollie North and dozens of others, drew heavily on militaristic language and metaphors to encourage its adherents to stay engaged and to try and preserve their value systems. Really, even shaping this paragraph was difficult without using militaristic phrases like try to preserve instead of saying fight to preserve. Over time, everything that was difficult about the Christian life became part of the battle or the fight or the war. Every method or tool of the Christian became a weapon or a shield or a sword. Now, there's certainly biblical precedent for this, given various verses that describe the weapons of our warfare or the sword of the spirit or the shield of faith. However, those verses are not the majority in the Bible, although they're certainly the majority language in much of American Christendom today. In fact, it's now thoroughly seeped into even non-religious discussions within the church. Many discussions of politics in Christian circles during the past two elections relied upon such militaristic language as well. The consequence of this focus on warfare and warlike language is that it comes with a focus on having an enemy. It's said that a man with a hammer sees everything as a nail. And a marine wag similarly observed that a man with a bazooka sees everything like a tank. But not everything should be a target. While we Christians do in fact have an enemy, and there are definitely spiritual battles in the heavenly realms, here's the interesting thing. In the New Testament, most references to enemy refer to Satan, and the few others almost universally appeal to believers to love their enemies and turn away from retaliation. As far as I can tell, not a single New Testament reference calls Christians to make enemies of other humans or human agencies. The only authorized enemy is our spiritual opponent, Satan, and his worldly systems, the cosmos. We're supposed to avoid treating fellow men like enemies. In other words, put down the bazooka. But when the language we hear in the religious environment is full of a focus on enemies, it shouldn't surprise us if division naturally results. We've begun to focus on being opposed instead of finding unity. And the deeper into this struggle the church finds itself, the more vehement that language has seemed to become. The more passionately that Christian leaders and influencers urge their followers to march to war, not against Satan, but against their fellow humans. Second to the militarization is the politicization of the church. It's hard to find a church that in a recent election season hasn't said something about how its people should vote. That's natural and it's quite understandable given that we desire to see our culture and our society reflect our value systems. The Revenue Act of 1954 established the modern tax code and it included section 501c3, 
or exempt organizations, while simultaneously placing limits on political activities of exempt organizations. For many years, that placed a certain damper on the involvement of churches with lobbying and political activism, given that churches really didn't wish to endanger their donors' tax-exempt gifts. But many churches have increasingly bucked this stricture, and they fought ways to affect the politics of their constituents and their region and their nation. So one way this can occur is simply to be very politically unambiguous without actually promoting any given candidate. In other words, a church is free to blatantly promote a political viewpoint without promoting those who might lead. And church members seem to have willingly and happily embraced this goal. After all, they've been taught for generations that the goal is to take over the nation for God, to once again be one nation under God. Although, that particular phrase is a very recent addition to our national identity. In reality, as recent as the 1930s, and it wasn't added to our currency in the Pledge of Allegiance until the 1950s. This Christian nationalism, as it's called, has exploded in popularity among evangelical Christians recently, and particularly during President Trump's administration. But it's worth also noting that the direction of this activism is hardly uniform across America. There are just as many churches that promote liberal or democratic ideals and candidates as those that are promoting conservative or Republican ideals and candidates. There should be a lesson there. It's not wise to assume that there's only one Christian way of voting. In any case, it's apparent that the Christian church has increasingly sought to obtain and to hold on to a political voice. And unfortunately, with this politicization has come compromise. Any halfway honest review of American Christian history will quickly uncover some uncomfortable facts. For example, the book The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby carefully details how the American church, consistently over hundreds of years, willfully and repeatedly adjusted its own position to ensure continued political power, but at the cost of many of its moral positions on how it treats oppressed people. Jesus and John Wayne similarly details the flow of the American church within U.S. political systems, taking increasingly questionable steps to ensure access to seats of political power. Dumez carefully shows how numerous U.S. politicians adjusted their own platforms to effectively buy votes, mostly from the evangelical church, and how those Christians consistently overlook some pretty significant moral and political shortcomings to get them into office. It's also interesting to see how various Christian figureheads adjusted their positions on political activism over the years. Notables such as Billy Graham and Jerry Falwell started from positions that political activism was inappropriate for the church and over time found themselves increasingly involved in politics. And Billy Graham, in fact, later said that he regretted having become political. The phrase, the ends justify the means, has long held a place of disdain for conservative thinkers. It's often accused of being a tenet of socialism, famously used by Stalin. And Republicans have long accused Democrats of unethical behavior in order to win elections or pass legislation. Interestingly, a well-known Marxist apologist website asserts that the maxim actually originated in church history during a dispute between Jesuits and Protestants. But regardless of its origins, it's particularly interesting that in this present evangelical and republican culture, conservative Christian activists have come to the conclusion that using abusive tactics and language is an appropriate method 
to win a fight over a political policy issue. Cursing another human, as chanted in the form of Let's Go Brandon, is explicitly forbidden to Christians. Romans 12.14 and Matthew 5.44-48, Luke 6.27-36, Romans 12.17-21, and others. Or consider Christian activist Christopher Rufo's self-admitted lies about the facts of critical race theory, made in a blatant and explicit attempt to discredit Democrats and their ideas and platforms. Or consider the newest grassroots tactics against CRT, with Christian professing parents literally bringing death threats, harassment, and sometimes actual violence to diligent school board members and meetings across the nation, to such an extent that the FBI got involved in protecting the school boards from Christians. It's really hard to imagine a more precise illustration of the ends justify the means, and frankly a more ironic one, than a Christian willfully reverting to such anti-Christian behavior, all in order to obtain or preserve political power for the church. During both 2016 and 2020 elections, so-called never-Trumpers repeatedly accused the evangelical establishment and its supporters of being willing to support an extremely flawed politician who promised them political power and pandered to their interests, but without actually acting like a Christian himself. It should be noted that similar claims were made against previous Republican presidential candidates, including John McCain and Ronald Reagan. So the evangelical church's relationship with President Trump is hardly the first case of the ends justifying the means in church politics. Now, I believe that an appropriate biblical summary of the overall mission of a Christian life is to accurately represent the Lord to a lost world. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. In verses 14 through 16, he goes on to say, You are the light of the world, and let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are specifically called to be the salt and the light of the earth, illuminating the world, bringing flavor to society, and bringing glory to the Father. As Jesus noted in verse 13, it's definitely possible for Christians to lose their saltiness and to be worth nothing but to be thrown out and trampled. That sounds harsh, but those are Jesus' own words, not mine. So he must consider this to be a rather important concept. When Christians collectively, the church, begin to act just like the world, acting as though the righteous ends justify ungodly means, and in this case spewing hatred and publicly cursing a fellow believer who happens to be the president, it has clearly lost its saltiness. There's nothing different than the world around it. At that point, the church is truly worth nothing but to be thrown out and trampled by men. And I assert that we see exactly this trend in America. The church is increasingly being rejected and trampled by men, as it seemingly has nothing to offer but plenty to oppose. On balance, the church is now seen as obstructing national progress, opposing reconciliation, fighting against a careful accounting of American history, whether good or bad, teaching hatred and division, and fighting against justice and fair treatment of all humans. Now, we might disagree with some of those claims, but no matter how the church feels about those charges, the world has begun to not just drift away, but to actively reject the church, and in many ways reject God at the same time. 
The church is not shining before men in such a way as they may see its good works, and it is not glorifying our Father who is in heaven. The essence of Jesus' doctrine frequently involves statements about accurately representing his Father. It was a constant focus of his statements about himself and similarly a focus of his instructions to the disciples. If the fundamental question is, what would Jesus do? Then Jesus' answer seems to consistently be, represent the Father. I would challenge anyone who uses that Brandon phrase to argue that participating in using an instantly understood, basically unveiled curse of a sitting American president is somehow accurately representing their Heavenly Father to the unsaved. You simply cannot get there. No matter what one thinks about President Biden's policies or character or capacity for the office, I assert that wearing clothing bearing that phrase or participating in such a chant during a church service or even saying it privately to a friend is a long way from accurately representing our Father to our society. Oh, but it's not a bad sin. Well, isn't it? It's a public violation and a public dishonoring of a person who, like it or not, is a deeply faithful believer made in the image of God and likely to spend eternity with the rest of us in the presence of Jesus, despite any faults that he currently has. Spend a moment studying Joe Biden's life before and even during the presidency. Many have argued that Joseph Biden has a far closer relationship with Jesus than Donald Trump ever did. Study his life for its fruit, study his religious practices, and then try and convince me that he's a non-believer. Even the Pope agreed after a personal meeting in October 2021 that President Biden, despite his public stance supporting the right to abortion, was eligible to continue receiving communion and was in fact a good Catholic believer. In the meantime, as Jesus also said in Matthew 7.1, Judge not, lest ye be judged. He goes on to say, For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure it will be measured to you. This is later discussed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.12-13, which says, For what business of mine is it to judge outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the evil person from among yourselves. While I do have deep concerns about some of his policies, I'm challenging my fellow Christians who judge President Biden as apostate or demonic or deserving of being cursed and are happy, even gleeful, to chant that judgment for the world to see. This should not be. I don't believe it's possible to participate in the Let's Go Brandon rhetoric and not find yourself in that lest ye be judged group. From where I stand, any church, or any Christian really, that participates in this hideous nonsense has truly lost their salt and light. Being thrown out and trampled by men is the nature of God's own judgment on his wayward people throughout recorded history. I believe that the Lord is more committed to his own reputation than that of the American church, and if he must allow the church to be trampled underfoot to teach it this lesson, that shouldn't surprise us. After all, we have a Bible full of examples of the Lord allowing his chosen people to be taken captive and trampled and winnowed for centuries at a time to teach them proper reverence for his name and his ways. So I appeal to my fellow believers, actively resist this foolishness. Don't be silent when it appears around you. If it's said in your presence, challenge your brothers and sisters in Christ to see a better way. Challenge your church leadership if it happens during a service. Remember the commandments of Jesus, and don't allow your salt and your light to be found 
deserving of being cast out and trampled. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon.